as we come to the Father, we leave change. You know, if, if you're coming into the presence of the Father and, and it's just kind of like, eh. <laughs> if we're just coming in there and, 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 and if you say, well, every time I pray, you know, I just always hear exactly what I want to hear. Something's off. I'm telling you, okay? I'm not saying that Yahweh will give you what you need, because He will. He will give you what you need when you need it. But let's face it. Sometimes we need to hear what we don't want to hear because the Father wants us to be more like Him. And ever increasing when the world is getting darker and darker and, and uh, people are scared more so than ever. And Yahweh hasn't called us to be in fear for the things of the world. He wants us to live in faith. And, and it's hard to have faith and fear together at the same time. So we have to choose one. So we choose faith. We choose to, to be in His hands and let Him carry us. Amen? One of, the, one of the people we're going to talk about this week, of course, we did last week as well, is Avram. And uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit from the Haftarah uh, this week because uh, I can. And um, as, as we go through the Parshot, we know that, uh, you ever notice that when you're reading in the Word, sometimes you'll see things that, wow, I need to hear this right now, right? Or if we don't, because, you know, we go through a yearly cycle, and there's three-year cycles, and they're all different, right? But regardless, it's still the same Word. So if you don't study, you don't read, and you go back and you read it the week later, and you're like, I wish I would have heard this. Why? Because the Word is alive. It's living, and it wants to get in your heart, and it wants to change you. Like David said, your Word have I hid in my heart. Why? So I don't have to do it? No. So, so nobody gets to see it? No. So that I might not sin against you. So in other words, it's not just something that's written on something. It actually changes to where you become more like Him, more of His character, more of His life, more of His Word, right? Okay. So we're going to see some things in that, and uh, hopefully you've, you've read and, and studied through the uh, Parsha this week. You know, we, we do have those available on YouTube if you haven't, and, and I think we have a backlog of about eight years now. But you can go back and you can look through them. You can study the Parsha and you can go through them. But I'm going to talk uh, this week, today, a little bit from the Haftarah, and we'll kind of tie that back into the Parsha, okay? Now, one of the things you may ask is... Um, why, why do we study the Haftarah? I mean, is it something that we're commanded to do? No, not really, although we are commanded to know the Word, right? We are commanded to get in the Word. So regardless, as long as we're getting in the Word, I think it's a good thing, don't you? So it's just another way to do it. I mean, how many of us, if we come through, we're like, okay, I've got this plan. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. How many of you have been there? You've seen that, right? Does anybody pitch a fit or have a fight with someone about, I've come up with this plan. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Oh, you shouldn't do that. That's created by man. Seriously, I've, I've heard it. You know, it's like, uh, guys, as long as you're in the Word, it's good, okay? I don't care how, just get in it, all right? So as we, as we follow the, through the Torah cycles, you know, it's not something that Yahweh broke down and said you have to, even the Haftarah cycles, it's not something it's commanded by God to break it down this way. It's just another way that we've kind of figured out how to get in the Word. And the beauty of it is all over the world, we can be studying the same portions of Scripture at the same which means we all have different takes, we all have different ideas, we have different thoughts and questions. When we come together, it's a right? that way we can learn from each other and help each other out, right? Okay, so regarding along the lines of the Haftarah, let me kind of break this down really quick, all right? The Haftarah was often used to teach the Torah. It's, it's a theory. It's not like a solidified fact, but it's a theory that when the Torah was outlawed, they would use the Haftarah to teach the Torah. Um, that could very well be, okay? Uh, but the thing is, we see throughout the Scripture where many times something's repeated. You know, even some prophecy, we see some prophecy where things happen more than once, right? Uh, the word, I mean, let's, let's face it, no matter uh, how you look back in time, you see the different people of faith, they all encountered a lot of the similar circumstances, didn't they? 
Maybe not exactly, okay? But we've all experienced similar circumstances. So you think Yahweh would speak to these things? Of course, because these are things that touch our lives, okay? So when we see the scripture and we see the word of Yahweh, we come to know his goodness and the examples that were put before us that we can learn from, and we can see how these things touch our life as well, right? Okay. Also, for the Haftarah, it's, it's, uh, it's said by, uh, I forget his name right here, it's, uh, it's a Professor Michael uh, Fabane. He says that one of three components of the public recitation of Scripture in the ancient synagogue are these three things. One, the Torah, which is the ultimate source of law. They would read from the Torah. Two, they would read from the Haftarah, which presents the words of the prophets who provided moral instruction and uplift. And then three, they would have a sermon or a homily, which drew on the authority of the rabbis to interpret and legislate. So in other words, they would read from the Torah, they would read from the Haftarah, and then there would be a message of some sort come forward to try to explain and talk about things down. Okay, um, a lot like you see in a lot of places today. So what we have here is just an example of how some things worked. And so the Haftarah was from the prophets, from the torsion of the prophets. Some believe the word Haftarah came from the word Maftir, which means an ending of something. So they would read from the Torah and the prophets, and that would end their service. That would be the end of the service. It would be part of the Haftarah. And again, I don't know. It's just another theory. Regardless, does it really mean anything? No, not really. It's just showing a fact that it was done. Okay, <laughs> and that's the important thing. That's the point I want to get to. Now this, in the synagogues, they would usually read from the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, right? So what would the writings be? Like some of the Psalms, it's called the Tanakh, right? The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The yeah, Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, right? So all of these it would be read in the synagogues, and then they would have a discussion or a teaching or something about to, to kind of break these down. Now, do we see this anywhere at all in Scripture to kind of back this up? Yes, we do. Okay, one, one example is in Luke chapter 4. We see in verses 14 to 17, it says, uh, So Yeshua returned in, in, the, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught, where? In the synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, which, where he had been brought up, and check this out, just for the sake of putting it there, as was his custom. What does custom mean? It's what you do. It's what you do. Okay, as was his custom, he was where? In the synagogue on what day? Aha. Uh -huh. So I'm just putting that out there for you to uh, do with what you, okay? <laughs> it was his custom to go to the synagogue on Shabbat. So he went to the synagogue on Shabbat and he stood up to read, right? So if he came to say, hey, who wants to read? He was like, I bet you he was one of the first ones. I'll read it. I could quote it, but I'll read it, right? right? Okay. Uh, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Yeshayahu was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. You know, this goes on where he says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, all that. Okay, so we see where Yeshua, they went in the synagogue, and it came to the time of, of, of the, uh, the service where they were going to read from the, the prophets, and Yeshua did that. So I'm just using this again just to say that they were reading from the prophet in the synagogue. Next, Acts 13, verse 15. After the reading from, what does it say? The law and... The prophets. So from the Torah and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Again, this wasn't, it says they sent a message. It's not like, okay, now we send messengers out into the city and we have to wait, you know. It's, it's a, just a delivery or an address, okay. We read from the, from the prophets and the writings. It would be like if we read through the scriptures and I say, okay, guys, what do you think, you know. You got something, you feel something stirring within you, what about, you know? So again, it's just again saying this was just done, all right? Again, Acts 13, 26. So brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to who has been sent the message of this salvation, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, speaking of Yeshua, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read when? Every Sabbath, fulfilled them by 
condemning him. And though they found him no, uh, found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate. So again, again, my point is just being, of course, we can read any other word any time, but there were certain times certain things were done. Okay? Again, traditions developed from the reading from a particular passage each week to go with the Torah portion. Uh, in, in the Talmud, again, uh, just my disclaimer in here, which many of you know if you've been watching uh, many times or been attending many times, you know my disclaimer. I don't, I don't consider the Talmud as scripture, but it does give us great insight into what the people were thinking at the time. Okay? So one of the things that they said was, uh, if we read from the prophets, we should probably make it coincide with something that we're doing in the Torah portion. That way we're following a theme. You know, we can see it in the Torah, we can see it in the prophets, and we can see how, how we're doing these things. Anything wrong with that? Again, I don't have a problem with the custom if it does not contradict the scripture. But if you have a custom that gets you into it, go. So with that, we come to this week's reading. This week's reading is Vayera from the Torah. It's Rashid, Genesis 8-22, and the Haftarah is from 2 Kings 4. And uh, when we throw in the Brit Hadashah portion, we can read in 2 Peter 2-11. And again, the, the Brit Hadashah portion is just portions that are selected to try to help coincide with some theme or something that the Torah. The idea is we can see where Yahweh did something in the Torah, but because he did it in the Torah, it doesn't mean we can't find it somewhere else. Okay? In other words, the entirety of the word reconfirms itself over and over and over again. So we just see that Yahweh is continually doing things in our life. So what are some things in this after that we read about in Kings? Well, a couple similarities are this. The, the focuses on two women of faith. You know, we have one woman and then another woman, and each of them, they are women of faith. They serve the God of Israel. And, uh, and then we see children being restored by miracles. One is life from death, and the other one is restored from a death-like situation. It means taken and removed away from the family and gone. But regardless, we see miracles that are being done, and it help provides life and restoration. Okay, so we see these things occurring in, all right? You go to the first one, 2 Kings 4, 1 through Elisha, not, not Elijah, okay? It's funny because uh, you always get confused when we say this in English. You know, Elijah and Elisha, which one? You know, especially if you have a little drawl in it, you're like, you, you could be saying either one, right? In the Hebrew, it's Eliyahu and Elisha. You can't confuse them in Hebrew, okay? So, uh, so we're not talking about Eliyahu who was taken up. We're talking about he who his mantle fell on, all right? We're talking about Elisha. So Elisha, he makes a way that a poor widow can obtain oil. The need for that, again, uh, there is enough to redeem or buy back or pay off the debt that she owed. Why did she owe? We'll to that. And then because of this, she kept her sons with her and was able to pay off the money that her family owed. That's what's going on here. Where was dad? So we see her children, they were facing being removed from her, but through the goodness of Yahweh, they were able to be redeemed, restored, and brought back to the family. So if, if they would have gone, there was a debt that was owed that they could not pay. What had happened was their father had passed away, and so the wife and, 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 the, and the children were left. They owed money, so the one they owed money to was going to come, take the sons, take them away to work off the debt. Which, how would that leave her? See what I'm saying? What would happen to her? She would be in a, in a very hard situation. So... What happens? She cries out to Yahweh. She goes to the prophet, and, and the prophet makes a way for redeem her children. Redeem means purchase, buy back, okay? So that to pay off the debt so that keep and remain her children. And let's take a look at that really quick. So 2 Kings 4, 1. So the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, see that? So the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, this was a godly man. This was a, a, a man of the prophets. He served the prophets. He could have been a prophet. We don't know for certain, but he was in that, you know, in that grouping of people. So he goes and uh, she goes to Elisha and she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared Yahweh, 
but a creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And what do we see in, in uh, Exodus and Shemot? We see that you shall not mistreat a widow or, or a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. See, we often hear it, you know, God, he is the God to the fatherless. He is the God to the orphans, to the widows, right? He means that, okay? He says, if someone cries out to me who has been mistreated, they are my children. I look out for them. You're supposed to be looking out for them. What happens? They cry out, okay? He will, he will guard and watch over and protect that. So Elisha wants to make sure there is a way for this woman for this not to happen, right? And so that she would be provided for. Now, what happens? Okay, so verse 2. So Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Uh, tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he says, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. So I want you to go, I want you to borrow vessels from your neighbors, and don't just ask for one or two, ask them for anything they got that doesn't have anything in it. <laughs> all right? He's, te he's testing her faith here, because you can say, you know, well, that doesn't make any sense, and not do it, and not get a blessing either, right? So she has to say, you know, okay, wh what, what, what can happen here? And he says, what I do for you? Let's tell you what, do this. Any vessel that you can get your hands on, bring it into the house, right? So what happens with verse 4? So go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. What does that imply? When one's full, set it aside, and do what now? Uh, get the next one, right? And keep pouring. As long as you got the vessels there, you're going to keep getting oil, right? Can you imagine? I bet if she started pouring oil, by the time she got to the second one and saw what was really happening, you think she sent her son back to, hey, I only borrowed one from them. Go get another one, you know? All right. So, so anyways, you go and you pour in and, and what happens? Okay. So verse five. So she went in from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons and she's poured and they brought vessels to. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, now go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons can live on the rest. See that? He provided enough to where she could pay off the debt. And then whatever was left, they, which there was plenty left because he said, whatever's left, you can live on. See that? So what a great retirement plan, right? So, so this is what happened. So there was a restoration that was happening here, right? So what happens next? Second part of the Parsha, 2 Kings 4, 8, 37. A wealthy woman, first we talked about a poor widow, right? Now we're talking about a wealthy woman. She shows continued hospitality to the man of Yahweh, right? And he asked how he can bless her. See that? I mean, she didn't ask him for anything. He says, you've been very gracious to us. You've been very nice to us. You've done a lot for us, you know, him and his servant. What can we do for you, right? And, and the servant says, well, she doesn't have a son. And the prophet goes, that's it. So go get her. So bring her in. So what happens? So he prophesies a son to be born. And, uh, and, and, and this is a blessing for them. So the son grows up. You can imagine just this blessing from Yahweh. So the son grows up, goes out to work the field with dad, and he dies. And the woman comes to the man of Yahweh and she says, come to the boy. He comes to the boy and, resur and resurrects him. But can you imagine what's going through her mind? I mean, when she goes to her husband, I mean, we'll, we'll, we're not going to read through all the rest of this portion. We've already read this portion of scripture today. But, but as you go back, can you imagine what's going through her mind? Because now she, they bring the son. He's, uh, the father says, take the boy to its mom. Goes to mom. She's holding the child. About noontime, he, he passes. She's holding him. And she goes up and she takes and lays him on the prophet's And she goes and talks to her husband and says, get me a couple people to get me a donkey, and I'm going to go see the prophet. And he goes, why? Can you imagine what she's thinking, right? It's like, what do you mean, why? <laughs> I'm going to go see the man of God, right? And, and, and he, he makes a comment. He goes, it's not a new moon or it's not a Shabbat. Why, why are you going to see him? Because there's something afoot here. So she goes, 
and she meets the servant and says, uh, he says, is all well? She goes, yeah, it's fine. It keeps going. Blows him off. Goes to the prophet and he says, what's going on? And she goes, did I ask to get, did I ask for this? You, you, you prophesied a son. I got a son and now he's dead. What are you trying to do to me? Right? But nonetheless, she's there. You see that? So, I mean, so she's in distress, obviously, but she's crying out to the prophet. She's laying out what she's really thinking. But at the same time, she tells him, come back and fix it. <laughs> so what happens? Let's go in. First off, we see the beginning of this. She's showing hospitality to the man. She's showing hospitality to the man of Yahweh. You see this in Kings 4, verse 8 through 10. Look at that. Eight. So one day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So he's there, and she says, I want you to come, and I want to I feed you. To which the man of Yahweh says, you got it. All right. <laughs> so she goes, and she feeds him, and then, where are you staying? Stay with us. And anytime you pass through, we'll feed you, we'll, we'll give you a place to stay. So anytime he goes through, right? So she's showing hospitality to him, but she's showing continued hospitality. This reminds you of Avram in this, in this week's portion. This is 18, right? Showing hospitality to passerby, okay? So what's going on? So whenever he, turned, whenever he passed by that way, he would turn into her. And she says to her husband, behold, now I know this is a holy man of God who is continually passing by. So what did they do? They wanted to prepare a place for them. So they prepared a table before the man of Yahweh to make sure his needs were cared for when he was near to them. Whenever he was around, they wanted to make sure he had what he needed, and then he would go do what he was in the area to go do, and then we'd go back home, all right? So what happens? 10. So let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. So whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Now, guys, back in the day, I mean, it's not like every person had their own private room, okay? And she's saying, when the man of God comes by, I want to make sure he has a place that's private, that's his, that he can just do what he needs to do. And I want to make sure he has these things in this room. So they gave him a place to pray where he could be in the presence of Yahweh, do what he needed to do, and then go on his way or come or whatever it may be, right? Let me submit to you this. They gave him a representation of the Mishka, a place that represents the presence. You know, some of you might, might use this terminology, a prayer closet. Why would I say something? Because of what was there, okay? What was in there? A table, a chair, and a lamp. A bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Well, how does that represent the tabernacle? <laughs> well, for one, the tabernacle had furniture in it, right? Different, different purposes. But in the Hebrew, we read, Mita, the Shulchan, the Kise, Umenorah. Okay? So, Mita is what? Not Mita. Mita is what? It's a bed. Shulchan is what? Table. Kise, chair. What's a menorah? Nair, a candle, a lamp, right? So, in each of these, what we have, if you take the Mim, the Shin, the Kaf, and the Nun, that's a Mishkan. So it was a place that was set aside. It wasn't used for anything else. It was a place that was set aside for the man of Yah, where he could go, he could pray, he would do what he needed to do, and then he could go out and come and go as he It's just one thing to say it's just a set-apart place. Now, I'm not saying it's a, I'm saying it place. So what happens? Both of these readings, there are some similarities. First off, we see go in and shut the door. Why? Because there are sometimes Yahweh wants to do something in your life that might not be for show of others around you, and other times it may be, okay? Sometimes things are done publicly for the benefit of those around to help build their faith, and sometimes other things are done just for you, you know? And how do we know which way this is? Well, it's only Yahweh. But regardless, sometimes you never notice there are other people when you start saying, you know, I really believe that Yahweh wants to do something in my life, and he wants to change me, and I don't want to be this person I used to be. You always get that one person that's always around, well, that's impossible. You ever notice that? You don't want that person around you when you're trying to pray, when you're trying to, right? So shut the door. <laughs> shut the door 
All right? So shut the door so you can pray. And that's the idea where we do get like behind the, the prayer closet kind of thing. Shut the door. Go in and let it be you and the Father. And we see this uh, as well. So they went in, they shut the door. And in the second scenario, she went in, she put the child on the prophet's bed. Why did she, why did she take him up to the prophet's room? Well, hello. <laughs> it was a set-apart place, and it was, it was for life and, and restoration, right? So she set him there and then went in and shut the door. And then when Elisha came back and he went in, what did he do? Shut the door. So this was something that needed to be done there. And, and what I'm saying, guys, even happened to Yeshua because we even see where Yeshua said he couldn't do many miracles. People's unbelief. So sometimes the group that you're around can influence you where it affects you. That's why it says bad, bad morals corrupt good character. But the people you hang around, you're like, oh, well, that, doesn't, that doesn't affect me. I assure you it does. So you have to be careful of those you hang But didn't Yeshua hang around sinners? No. Went to be around and to minister, to work with them and to meet them where they were. But then he retreated back to. So again, is guarding what the father is doing in our life while re but knowing there's new too. So what happens? Similarities of the prophet's action. Let's take a look at that. Uh, so for the prophet's actions, uh, Eliyahu, right? Uh, Elijah, we're speaking of Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, asked a poor woman to make a small meal for him. You guys remember the story? Woman basically says, well, I've got nothing. We've had nothing for a long time. I have just enough flour and oil to make a small cake for me and my son. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. What faith? She was at the end of her rope. She didn't, she didn't have any, she had nowhere else to go. She didn't see a way out. But Yahweh, Yahweh came through Eliyahu. He came and says, uh, hey lady, I'm hungry. Could you by chance make a meal for me? Put yourself in her. I have just enough to make a very small amount where I can feed me and my son and then we're going to die. And you want me to give it to you? So you want to make you a meal and die. I don't even get a last meal. Think about it. I mean, seriously, this woman, because it was, it was someone that Yahweh had presented in front of her to, because of her faith, that she knew a principle that we have a hard time with sometimes. In the kingdom of Yahweh, you give what you need. You need love, you give love. Need a, need a friend, be a friend, right? So we, we reach out. And so what happens here, she knew that if she prayed for the man of God, if she gave him what he was asking for, God's going to have to give it back. Now, granted, she wasn't asking, if I give you this little morsel of food, I get a Cadillac. I mean, it's not what she was asking for, okay? But she was saying, if I, if I make sure that you are provided for, Yahweh will provide for me. Do you ever notice when you're praying for other people, Yahweh finds a way to provide for you? When you're praying for others for what they need, Yahweh always finds a way to give you what Maybe not the way you thought, but he can do what he wants. So here, she goes and she makes for him. Let's go on. Let's so make a small meal for him. She used the last of her flour and the oil to make the meal. Eliyahu blessed them and said they would have flour and oil for as long as the drought lasts. Because she blessed him as a blessing. Because she gave to Yah. She didn't give to Eliyahu. She gave to Yah. Because she gave to, that, to him what she needed. And notice, he, just, he didn't say you're going to have an over, over super abundance. He just said you're never going to run out. Never going to have whatever you need. It's going. I imagine even if she invited someone over, there was enough. Maybe it was just enough every meal. I don't know. Open up the flour. Well, there's enough for us for today. Kind of like manna, right? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't say, but it's a thought, right? So let's keep going. So later, the son became ill and died. Eliyahu took him from her arms, carried him up into the, in the upper chamber where he, where he lodged. Took him where? To his room where he lodged and laid him on his own bed, stretched himself over the boy, and he prayed. And see similarities between what we read in 2 Kings 4. And do you think Elisha knew about this? Sure. So he kind of mimicked what his teacher showed him. 2 Kings 4, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lay, laying dead on the bed, so he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to Yahweh, verse 34. 
And he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched out himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again, and he walked back, back and forth in the house, and he went and he stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his Wow. So now they're sneezing signs. We're like, get away, right? Unclean. But he sneezed seven times, and then he came back into life. All right? So we see similarities between what happened with Elisha and Eliyahu. We see similarities in there. But do we see some similarities between what happened in, in, the, uh, in the prophets and the Torah portion? Sure. Sure. We see some similarities. Let's take a look at some. First off, preparing a place. There's a theme throughout Scripture to prepare a place for Yahweh to dwell, isn't it? Prepare a place. So this happened in the tent as well. Avraham, right, the very beginning of, of uh, this parsha in chapter 18, Avraham, he's, in, he's at the tent, and he brought the three men into his tent, and he fed them and treated them hospitably, right? Let's take a look at it. Now, I want, you to be, I want you to pay very special attention to this wording. It says, verse 1, And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat by the door of the tent in the heat of the day, right? So who appeared to him? yod heh vav okay? Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, which, by the way, uh, that could also signify that as well. So here we go. So he's going, he's appearing to him, and, and as he's sitting at the tent uh, in the heat of the day, so the heat of the day is like, you know, we would say about 3 o'clock, you know, somewhere between 2, 3, when there's beaten down. Some of the Midrashas say that this is the, the, the third day after his circumcision kind of thing, you know. It's like really getting to him. He's really not feeling it, right? He's just kind of like there, in the heat of the day, just going, oh, sitting by the tent, right? But what happens next? Verse 2 says, he lifted up his eyes. First off, notice who appeared to him. So Yahweh's there, right? Abraham lifts up his eyes, and what does he see? Three men. But who's there? Yahweh's there. But what does he see? Three men. But it says Yahweh was there. Just food for thought. So he lifts up his eyes, and behold, three men were standing there. And when he saw them, he ran, he ran to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. I mean, I know Abraham is given, he's saying, you know, he, he, he treated everyone very hospitable and, and he, he was always showing thanks and giving thanks and doing things. But I don't know, man. These guys walk by who I don't even know. I'm going to bow down to them and, and call them Lord and all this. Verse 1, who appeared to him? Just making sure we're on the same page here. All right. So, and he says, oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass me by. I, lo- I, lo- I love the narrow on this. <laughs> so he says, don't pass me by. Just uh, let, me, let, me, let me prepare just a little light refreshment for you. Just come by. Let me give you some water. Let me clean you up a little bit. And uh, just give you just a morsel of food. <laughs> so what happens? So verse 6, And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah, and he says, Quick, three you see is a fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran, and, uh, and, and, he, and he took a herd. He ran to the herd and he took a calf, right, tender and good, and gave it to the to a young man who prepared it. How quickly, right? Slice that bad boy thin so it cooks fast, right? And and then he took curds and milk, right? Just letting you know. And then he took the curds and the milk and the calf that he had prepared. So he took the curds and the milk and the calf that he had prepared, along with the cakes that were there too, right? And and took them. And then he stood by them by the tree while they ate. He didn't even sit down to eat with them. He was there ready to get them anything else they needed while they were eating. He was serving them, okay? I think it's hilarious. Come, let me give you a morsel of food. Here's this calf and some curds. You know, you thought Culver's was rude. And, and here, and, 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 and sets them before along with three cakes for each one. Three C is a fine flour. Now, it's not a unit of measure every day. Okay, so what, what, what's the picture that's unfolding here? Let's take a look at it, okay? Three omers, 
equal about one seah. Each of these visitors was served three portions of an omer. Now, how much manna was collected in the wilderness? An omer per, per person. One omer per person. Here, three seahs of fine flour, uh, uh, and, and, and what we have here, okay, about three omers equals one seah. There's three of those, and he sets three omers before each one of them. So, I don't know how hungry you are, but I hope you are, all right? And now we're getting into math time. Oh, boy. It's Shabbat. I don't do math on Shabbat, right? <laughs> kind of like, I don't know if you guys have seen, you know, where uh, Peter says, Lord, how many times do I forgive? Seven times? Thinking he's something, right? And he says, oh, no, not just seven. Seventy times seven. And Peter's thinking, I knew I shouldn't have done math. It's like, now, now not only do I have to forgive, I got to do math too, you know, kind of thing. So here, let's, let's, let's get into this just for a second because I do have a point, all right? I do want to show you something. I do want to show you what Avraham set before. There is a connection. Take a look at it. Math time. Follow me slowly. <laughs> okay? Take a picture if you want to go back over it again. <laughs> so the smallest unit of measure is what? An ohm. Three omers equal about one sia, which in the scripture you have heard it, like in the Brit Hadashah, use one measure of, okay, what they call one measure is a sia, which is about three sias made up of about three omers each equal what is called an ephah, an ephah. These verses, okay, like I said, math time. Like I said, I'm going slow. Take a picture. Write it out on a piece of paper if you have to. It'll click, okay? These verses show that the smallest meal offering that could be given was one sia, a meal offering for, look, so you have an omer. You have three omers, which equals what? One sia. Ten omers equal one ephah. So about three sias is, is pert near one ephah, right? Three C is made up of about three overs. Yeah, Southern's kicking in. All right. So the smallest meal offering that could be given is one third of an ephah. One third of an ephah, which would be Numbers 15, 8 to 10. Whenever you are to prepare a young bull for a burnt offering or special vow offering or a what? Fellowship offering to who? To Adonai. Bring it with a young bull, a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah, about one seah. A fine mixed flour mixed with a half hint of oil. You are also to offer as a drink offering half a hint of wine as, as a fire offering and pleasing room. So uh, what I'm getting to is Avraham set before these guys fellowship, fellowship, dwelling together. Interesting, isn't it? And the beauty of this is you don't have to agree with me. It's just no pun intended. But take it. Again, what did Abraham set before Yahweh? My opinion, he set, by, set before him a fellowship offering. Genesis 18, he says, well, be, well, so while I bring a morsel of bread, yeah, <laughs> that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah. He said, quick, how much? Three seahs of fine flour. Knead it, make cakes. So we see this, and then what is declared? They say, you're going to have a son. And what does Sarah do? She laughs, right? And, and she says, look, <laughs> I'm almost 90. He's almost 100. Seriously? Like, that just ain't possible, okay? Like, the, physic, the physics, the way it has to happen. She's, I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't that young, right? But is anything too hard for God? And people, people jump, jump at Sarah for laughing, but, you know, Abraham did it. If you go back, you read the scripture. And, and again, they called him Itzah, which means laughter. Because he was just so joyful, right? No, to remind them that when Yahweh says you're going to have a son, they laughed. But th that God took that laugh and made it a positive thing for their life, okay? To remind them, God can do anything. You laughed at first, but God is faithful. Okay, so the blessing prophetically declared was similar reaction, okay? Um, in uh, 2 Kings 4.16, so he said at this season, now he says at this season, it's Lamoed, Lamoed Hase, Moed, what's Moed? 
a point of time. Okay, a point of time. We call the festivals Moedim. Because in Leviticus 23, when it says these are the appointed seasons, the appointed times for Moedim. So he says at the appointed time, this time next year, and how does the woman respond to the prophet? I don't think so. You got you, you, You're kidding me, right? Don't, don't joke with me now, right? And he says, no, surely, you know, right? So no, I will, about this time next year, at the appointed time, you will have a son. And for Sarah, in Genesis 18, 14, it said, is anything too hard for Adonai? At the time set for it, Lamoed, at the Moed, that at this season next year, I will return to you and Sarah will have a son. There's a lot of Midrash out there that believes that Yitzhak was born uh, around Pesach because he was, I don't know. But again, it's just more. So this is a picture of a total surrender of that son, symbolizing that. What did Yahweh call Avram to do with Yitzhak? I gave you this son. I promised you. I did it. She did. I want you to lay him down. What? No. Right? That's not what happened. Let's go forward. Genesis 22, 22, 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Avraham. And he says to him, Avraham. And he answered, Hineni. Right? I've said before in the past, your life will greatly change instead of excuses or other things. Because Hineni, it's not like, here I am, like, oh, you were looking for me. I'm over here. You know, that's not what it is. He's saying, I am present. I am listening. Okay? I am present. I am here. I am attentive. What can I do for you? Okay? So Hineni, I'm here. So he says, so take your son, your only son. Wait, doesn't he have another boy? Mm-hmm. But what was the promise? I will give you a son through, so he, she will give birth to the one that is promised. Right? Take your son, your only son, the one who will pass in the covenant blessings and pass on these that has been given. Take your son, your only son, check this out, whom you, ah, whom you love. So again, not just talking about, so your other son, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzhak. So is there any question on who this is? <laughs> so take your son, your only son, Yitzhak, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and, uh, and there you will offer him as an ola, you will lay him down. What does an ola mean? It means burnt offering, but literally it's to ascend, to go up. Okay, it doesn't mean that they, they translate it as burnt offering because it's put on the altar and it's completely consumed and it goes up in the flames. Right, so it is something that ascends. So there's a burnt offering. So here, take your son, your only son, Itzak, whom you love, and offer him up to me. To paraphrase. Okay, now let's take a look at this. Again, we've gone through things in the past that talk about. The foreshadow of Yitzhak being symbols of Yeshua and being some things that we can find in Yitzhak's life and in Yeshua's life as well. We're not breaking all those down today. We've done that many times uh, as we come to the Torah portion in the past, but we are going to touch on a couple of things, okay? So he says, take now your son, Et Bincha. Now, the Aleph Tav, my opinion, why do I say my opinion? Because it is. <laughs> you can do with it what you want. My opinion, when Yeshua was speaking to uh, John when he says, I am the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, my opinion, he said, I am the Aleph Top. Because Alpha Omega really doesn't mean anything other than the first letter and the last letter, of, okay? But Aleph Top is not only the first and the last of the Hebrew Aleph Bet, but when these two words are together, it is in the Torah over 7,000, and not every time is it translated. Matter of fact, it's in the very first verse. Not every time is it translated. And, and many people will, t will tell you today, oh, it just points to a definite article in the grammar. They're right, okay? It points to a, to a definite article in the grammar, but the thing is, in, in the scriptures, it doesn't always follow the laws of grammar. In places where it should be, sometimes it's not. In places where you wouldn't think it'd be there, it is, okay? So I think there's more happening. So again, I think Yahweh is just revealing something. My opinion, whenever we see something like this, it does show us something, somehow, some way, in relationship to the Aleph the beginning and the last. 
Okay? So when he's talking about Yitzhak, he says, take your son, your Aleph-Tav son, Avraham being a picture of, of Yahweh here, but his son being a picture of the son, right? So take your son, the Aleph-Tav son, your only son, et hidcha. Yahid is the word that's used here for only son, and it doesn't mean like only in just one. It means completely unified, special, and unique. So take your only, take your, your unity son, united son, whom you love. It. Another thing is very interesting. You know, we say God is love, right? He is. Absolutely. But you know the very first time the word love is used in Scripture? Right here. All the way into Genesis chapter 22. Not even in the beginning with Adam and Eve. All the way through that. The very first time the word love is used in Scripture is a picture of how much the Father loves His Son. 316. Okay. So take them and go. And on the third day... Abraham raised up his eyes, and he saw the place in the distance. He goes, he looks up, and he sees the place in the distance. There's something about that third day, isn't it? So many times in Scripture when you hear about the third day, and Yahweh does something amazing. How about when, they, when they're at, at Sinai, when they're down at the mountain, and Yahweh says, I want you to prepare, I want you to get ready, because on the third day, I'm going to come down, I'm going to meet you. What about in the prophets where it says, though Yahweh has struck us, though we're down, and the third day, he will raise us up. How about of when he rose on the, yeah, okay. So you see the point. Something about this third day. And so he goes, and he goes, and he, and he looks up to the area of Moriah, to the region of Moriah, as it's given in the scripture. The region of Moriah is Jerusalem, specifically around the Temple Mount. So when he goes, and on the third day, he lifts up his eyes, and he looks toward the place where the temple would stand, and he looks to the Temple Mount. What does he see that would make him say, yep, that's the spot? You go, and he looks. He looks towards Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm going to name names here. We were, we were on tour with uh, Mike Clayton and Oh Young. They took us to some mountains across from this area, across from this region. And they went and they said, so where Abraham was and where he was going, what route do you think he would take? Right? And so in all, in all probably, the, so you go and you look towards Jerusalem and what? There was something there that let him know God wants. How about this? In regards to the, the Temple Mount and the temple in Jerusalem, doesn't he say this is a place where I will put my name? Does he? Let's look. Machine. The valleys around Jerusalem form a letter Sheen. It says that Abraham knew me as El Shaddai. Sheen. Shaddai. So he is, the, he is the Almighty One. He is the Mighty God. So when he came, he looked up and he saw this mark of God. In Jerusalem, he knew this is the area where God has placed his name. This is the area where he's going to do that. Plus, furthermore, I believe he had the faith to say, this is the son that is promised. If God says he's going to take him and wants his life to be taken, in order for the promise to actually follow through, God is going to have to resurrect him. So we have a picture of the son who laying his life down, being offered to Yahweh completely, but we also see a picture of faith and resurrection. I'm not the only one that thinks further. So we're talking about a place where Yah put his name, right? Now what does the scripture say regarding you? He puts his name within you. He puts his word within you, right? When we come to him, we enter covenant with him. His name is within us. We take on his character, his life. I die daily, right? I must decrease. He must increase. So show forth his name, his glory, his presence, right? If you look at a heart in the letter, in the heart, you can see the letter. Pretty cool. The place he has put his name. Further, look at this. I'll split up the various components. Machine is made up of four yods and three vavs. The numerical value of Mashiach, Messiah. Look at this. Genesis 22.5. So Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I, and the boy, will go over there and worship and come again to you. Check it out. He doesn't say, I and the boy will go there, we will worship, and I will come back alone. 
we will go, we will worship, and we will come back. See that? And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he, and, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went to both of them together. And Isaac says to Abraham, Father, and he says, and my son, and he says, uh, you got the fire, you got the wood, you forgetting anything? Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, what? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So they went to both of them together. I want to look at this phrase for a second. This was not just a profound statement of his faith saying that God will provide for himself. God wanted me to do this. He will provide for himself. How do you think his son knew that he was going to lay his life down, right? So what's, what's, what's going on here, okay? So if you look at it in the Hebrew, Elohim yireh lo. Elohim, God, yireh, will provide lo him, to himself. Yahweh will provide him. And then we have the lamb for the offer, for the Ola. Bini, my son. Because we have a picture of something happening prophetically. The father saying, my son provided for you. Picture of resurrection. Look in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered of Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See that? So even the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. If Abraham was going to lay his life down, he had no choice but to believe that God was going to resurrect him because God said so. God promised. God said, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, through Abraham and your seed and your descendants, the one promised through Sarah, your son, the one whom you love, Yitzhak, right? Luke 20. 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moshe showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, and the God of Yaakov. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of what? The living, for all live to him. I, I said last week, you know, I, I find it amazing that in Yahweh revealing himself to his people, chose to say to them, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. This is my name, and this is how I am to be known forever. Our association with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the God they showed. We serve the God of Abraham. That is his name. That is how he said he is to be remembered from generation to generation. It's 22, 12. And he says, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to harm him. For now I know that you are a man who fears God because you have not withheld your son from me. In verse 14, Abraham called the place Adonai Yireh. Adonai will see to it or Adonai provides. As it is said to this day on the mountain, Adonai is... Now, if he laid his life down in the, in the region of Moriah around the Temple Mount, and this was given, and Abraham declared, on this mountain, in this place, Yah will see to it. In the place where he placed his name, who else do he died? Abraham was obedient to you. Side note in this, obedience to the word is not legal. Obedience is not legalism. You know when it becomes legalism? When you don't want to do it. The problem with living our life daily is we don't want to die. You know, Rav Shaul, I die daily. In other words, the things in my life that need to go away. I kind of find myself holding on to them. But God wants those things to go away. So I, put, I, I learned to put them away. Not my will, His will. That's why even Yeshua prayed, right? Not my will. We need to learn. In those areas of my life that, that we know, okay, let those things die. And whatever Yahweh wants to resurrect, He will resurrect. Matter of fact, when, he, when Yahweh restores something, it's always good, isn't it? Let's talk to when Yah restored him, parable. Deuteronomy 10, 12. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? What does God ask? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in his way, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments of Yahweh, his statutes, command you this day for Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you? 
What does he require? We do just love mercy and walk humbly. Do these contradict? Not at all. They are expounding on one another. So while Avram, what he went through was a test, it also prophesies what Yah will do because of who he is, because of his faithfulness. Because if you are in covenant with him, guess what, guys? There are, there are promises in the word for We have to learn to walk in it. We have to learn what he is telling us. And, and nowhere, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea, I'm not saying you're going to have an easy life. You are never promised, ever. You know, people who say, oh, you know, just give your life to the Lord and everything will be okay. Tell, tell all the disciples. You know, every one of them was martyred. Yeah, it's going to be an easy life. He doesn't promise you it. What he does promise you is hope. What he does promise you, what he does promise you is joy in the midst of anything. What he does promise you is to walk with him in that. That's what Abraham was. What was being asked of him was his world, his everything. Yahweh tells us the same. What, do you, what, what is it, Yahweh, that you're asking for me to give you? And Yahweh says, yes, all of it. Everything you have, everything you are, everything that you identify as, give it to me. And I will return to you everything that I desire for you. It'll be, isn't it better if we just surrender to him? It's, I'm not going to say it's an easier. John 1, 12 to 14. But to as many as did receive him, to those who put their trust in his person and power, he gave the right to be what? Children of God. Not because of bloodline, physical impulse, or human intention, but because. And the word became and lived among us. We saw his Shekinah, his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full See that? Yeshua said, I am what? He doesn't just say, I'm going to be resurrected. He doesn't just say in this scenario, go back and read John 11. He doesn't just say in this scenario, I will resurrect your brother. He says, I am the resurrection. <laughs> he is life. He is the glory of the living. He is the word of life. He is. Yeshua says, I am. Whoever believes in me, though he die, what's it say? Yet, and everyone who lives and believes in shall never die. Do you believe? I say for us as well. Do you believe that Yahweh meant what he said? I'm not asking you to look at life circumstances. I'm asking you to look at him. He is. Even, even things where we're like, okay, my life is done. It's over. I don't know what to do and I don't know where I'm going. Guess what? Lay it down. Give it to him and learn. Kind of jumping forward in the partial. This is the last time that we see or hear of Itzah in the storyline. Then we go to Haiti. So this is the last time we see or hear from Yitzhak until we see a picture from laying his life down, death, burial, resurrection. It's the next week when he meets his bride. The word is a lot. We need to learn to walk in it, right? Let Yahweh say what he says. So, man.